Amen. Open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1. And, uh, and uh, I'm thankful for the Word and how it exposes truth, exposes uh, an exposure in your life, and of course, the revelation of truth. And we've been looking at Revelation chapter 1, and I want to walk you through uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 this evening. And I want to give you some uh, pretty heavy background on verses 4 and 5 and where we've been thus far to kind of bring us all on the same page and just some fantastic material. Of course, Revelation chapter 1 begins with the first three verses, which make up the prologue to the book. It's not necessarily a part of the prophecy, but it's an attachment to the front of the prophecy. And John utilizes that to kind of, in a concise statement, tell you about the book of Revelation, this prophecy, before you ever get in it. And the whole prophecy is summed up in the first word of the book, and in specifically the first opening statement, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation is an unveiling of who Jesus is. So when you get into the book of Revelation, you're not surprised, you're not distracted with times or dates or antichrists or events or language. Everything comes back down to uh, the person of Jesus and who he is. Leaving those first three verses, you come down into verse 4, and you enter into the introduction to the prophecy. <clears throat> and there's a couple of things that are uh, specifically mentioned here in verse 4, the beginning of the introduction. Number one, the writer is introduced, and we know the writer is John. He's not the author, obviously, of the book of Revelation. He's the writer. We know that specifically uh, throughout the introduction. He tells twice how Jesus commands him to write down what he sees and then what he has seen. Uh, in verse 11, <clears throat> it says, Jesus says, uh, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So it wasn't his message, he just wrote the message down. He wrote it down. And then after uh, a short dialogue there for, uh, that John gives us, in verse 19, Jesus says again, write therefore what you have seen and, of course, he finishes that statement. So John is the writer. He's not the author. He's the writer. So he's identified at the outset of verse 4. And then the specific recipients, and I say specific recipients because we know that there were more than just these seven churches that were intended for this prophecy. The specific recipients are listed, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the specific recipients are listed in chapters 2 and 3, and they are, of course, the seven churches in modern-day Turkey in the province of Asia. But we know that there were more than these specific seven churches. Uh, specifically, we know there were more than seven churches in the province of Asia. Some scholars suggest up to 12. We know for sure that there were nine. Biblically, that were, there were eight. At the end of the book of Colossians, um, we know that uh, uh, he addresses the church of Laodicea, uh, or at least references the church of Laodicea in that book. And that Laodicea was a neighbor of Colossae. And Colossae, which we have a, a New Testament letter written to that church, is not mentioned among the seven churches. And they're in the province of Asia. And so you would, of course, naturally ask the question, why then, uh, you have seven churches that are addressed, why not eight churches, why not Colossae? Hey, why not address Colossae? Well, it was very typical in the early church that 
you know, a letter was written to one church, it wasn't necessarily written to that church, but it was written to the area in which uh, that church uh, was, and of course, they were all to be recipients of that letter. And in fact, when you come into Revelation, you know, this is not seven letters to seven churches. This is one letter that was to circulate among the churches in the province of Asia. Seven of them are being addressed. So, you have John, who's the writer, being addressed, and then you have the seven churches specific addressees uh, listed as well. Then he, he extends, this is where we're going to get technical, he extends grace and peace. <clears throat> so there is an extension of grace and peace to these seven churches. But it's not a grace and peace that is from John, it is a grace and peace that is from our triune God. And I say triune God because God, the Christian God, is one God, of course, but in three persons. And we know those persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are the three persons of the Trinity. Now, specifically in the book of Revelation, we've been finding that what's put, and we're going to deal with this some tonight, but where the emphasis is put in our God is not necessarily in their names, because we, we, we don't even know the name of the Father. Uh, I mean, we call him Father, but that's more of a functional term. And we don't know the name of the Holy Spirit. That's more of a functional term. And in the Gospel of John, he's called the Counselor or the Parcelate. So they're really not names. They're described oftentimes in function. And that's really heavily done in Revelation. So when it says grace and peace to you, we know it's from God, but each member of the Godhead is presented functionally. Now, what I mean by that <clears throat> is each member of the Trinity, okay, God, the one God, is extending grace and peace. And each member of the Trinity has a function in that. This is how we've been, let me give you an illustration. This is how we've been processing this. God is one in purpose, one in heart, one in motive. He is one in substance. Okay, he is one in action. Uh, the purpose of God is, of course, one of the purposes of God, is the redemption of man. Now, we know each member of the Godhead, that's the purpose of God, okay, three and one, but each member of the Godhead has a function in that. The Father had a function in the redemption of man. His function in that role, his function in that purpose was, of course, to be the overseer and the initiator, the one that would be in the heavenlies and that would oversee and bring about, and he's the, he's the unmoved mover, that kind of idea. That's the Father's function. The Holy Spirit's function was, of course, to come down and indwell us. His function in bringing about the purpose, the redemption of man, was he was going to come down and reveal the Father to man. And, of course, Jesus' function in the purpose of redemption of man was he was to come down and be the atoning sacrifice and the demonstration of what man was supposed to look like. Okay? So you have one God, one purpose, three functions. Each member has a function in that. And we know him functionally. It's the same here. It's really the same here. You have the purpose of God, and it's stated in verse 4, to extend grace and peace to these seven churches. And each member of the Godhead has a function in that. Okay? So, the first member of the Trinity that's mentioned is the Father. And his function, as described in verse 4, is or how he is described functionally is, grace and peace to you from him who is and him who was and him who is to come. And how he is presented, to kind of give a quick re- recap, if we've, we've called him 
the eternal, there's an eternal aspect, and there's an essence aspect to the Father. Uh, eternal aspect, meaning that God is presented in eternal terms in verse 4. And he uses bad grammar in order to do that. So he's presented in eternal forms. We serve an eternal God, which stands in sharp contrast to, to the churches in the province of Asia who are temporal. And we come to the idea that one of the major emphasis in the book of Revelation for an eternal God is time. <clears throat> That's a major issue uh, in the in relationship between man and God. God is not bound by time. Man is bound by time. And, and time is not given as a punishment, but time was given, think about this, time was given by God not as a punishment, but as a means of grace. Grace and peace manifested by God to man, extended by God to man, manifest itself in time. He gave us time to repent. He gave us the period of opportunity not to be the way that we are. Quick recap. <clears throat> His essence is also bound grammatically by time. Okay? In other words, when he gives us time to repent, it's not something that's apart from himself. He is, in, he is inextricably bound in the, uh, in the redemptive process of man. So grace and peace, the Father's aspect of sinning grace and peace has a time element in it. We've been looking at that. Now, the other member of the Trinity, <clears throat> that's the next one that's, that's presented, is we know him as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is presented as the seven spirits who are before his throne. And of what some of the interesting uh, aspects of the, seven, uh, of the Holy Spirit is, is that first of all, he's presented in plural language, plural language, which we know that he's not plural, he's one, but he's presented in plural language, and he's specifically uh, referred to in seven language. Oh, I shouldn't write it like that. Stay consistent here. He's, he's presented as seven, which was really really significant because the churches are seven. There are seven churches and, of course, seven, uh, seven spirits in his description, the seven spirits before his throne. Now, we know God, the Holy Spirit, is not seven. He's one, so why would he say seven? Well, seven and numbers specifically in the book of Revelation are important, but seven signify, is always associated with God, just like white is always associated with God. And so seven represents fullness or completeness or wholeness. It's oftentimes contrasted with Satan's number, which is? Okay. So Satan falls a little short. He's not altogether there. <laughs> okay. <coughs> okay, he's full. He's complete. He's adequate. And, of course, he cor it correlates to the church. So the Holy Spirit is the one that's adequate. He is, he is full and he's complete for the ministry among the seven churches. Now, He's also not just involved with the churches, the Holy Spirit's roles in the churches, he also envelops the throne. Envelops the throne, which of course has to do with God. So you have the full totality of the Spirit that is saturating both the church and the throne in heaven. And we've had three specific applications, but we're going to get to that later this evening. Just going to give you an overview. So grace and peace is being extended from our Trinity. Okay? 
from the from the Father. He has a function in that extending. It's like God. It's like God sits back and says, "Hey, we are going to send grace and peace to the seven churches in the province of Asia." And the Father says, "Oh, I know how. I'm going to plug into that. Hey, I'm going to give time. There's going to be a time aspect. I'm going to give them a period of opportunity in order to uh, repent and not be the way they are." And the Holy Spirit, that's that's a great idea. I'll piggyback on that. In fact, I will go down in that period of time and I will indwell their bodies and I will reveal us to them and, and teach them and resource them and, and hey and all the while I will remain enveloped he's the fullness of the spirit I will remain enveloped in who we are and I will serve as a, a mediatory role between God and man function now you would say the third member is left out and we're getting to him and that's Jesus we'll look at him tonight <clears throat> Jesus is referred to in verse 5 as and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, my NIV translation, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay? So I'm going to write these down here. And I want to separate them. We're going to explain it later. Jesus Christ, and it's really Jesus the Christ, he, his function okay, is described as the witness, and we separate the witness and the faithful for a reason. We'll get to that. He's also, what else? He is the firstborn from the dead. And the last one is he is the he is the ruler of kings. Ruler of the kings of the earth. This is his function. Now we can't just look at Jesus Christ outside of the function of extending grace and peace. And what we really found significant as we begin to study this, it's not hard because the whole thing bespeaks grace and peace. Now there's something really special we need to look at when we're looking at Jesus, especially in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is obviously a member of the Trinity, which means he is God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, presented third, but he is the second member of the Trinity in the Bible, uh, presented, we know it's true, he is God. And he's presented as such in the book of Revelation. But what's also, just sometimes in the same passage, he's not only presented as God, he's very much presented as man. Man, because he experiences, this, was so, this is so crucial, he experiences, not faking it, he experiences, experiences all that man experiences. He experienced birth, potty training, okay? He experienced, I believe, uh, sickness. I'm absolutely convinced he got the equivalent of the flu, whatever they had that day. We know he got tired. Okay? We know all that stuff. When he was on the cross and they nailed in his hands, it wasn't just fake. It wasn't like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> he felt that. So he felt, he experienced, he knows what death is like. He's the firstborn. Can't wait to get to that one. He's the firstborn from the dead. So he's going to experience. See, he was literally came down and function as a man. Is he God? Absolutely, obviously. Hey, he's in the Trinity. He is God. He's the second member of the Godhead. But at the same time, he is man, which is really interesting because he is in himself extending. This is so neat. He in and of himself is extending grace and peace to the seven churches as God, and yet at the same time, he is the recipient of the grace and peace that is being extended by the Father because he's man, which is really neat. 
which is really neat. Okay, um, I want to give you just a couple of uh, illustrations on that as we move along through the evening. But before we look at that specifically, <clears throat> I want to look, and we're going to look at that specifically, so I'm not going to leave you hanging on there, okay? He's God, and I probably should write that there so I don't forget. He is God and man at the same time, okay? He's God and man. Now, but in, uh, as we've been looking at the Trinity as he's presented in this passage, we've been note noting that grammar, and we all love grammar. Okay, we all love grammar. Thanks to John, we all love grammar. Um, grammar has been really important in this. And there's a couple aspects to grammar that we want to look at tonight that are really helpful for us. <laughs> and I want to walk us through some of it. Um, we, we talk a lot about, well, the basics. I, I've, been, I've been communicating like this. There are basics of English that serve as the foundation or the basics of Greek as well. They really don't change. For instance, uh, some very common things about English that we know of, we have verbs and we have nouns. Common, basic English, everyone knows. Uh, nouns express the person or thing. Bubba is a noun. <laughs> Bubba's a noun. Wouldn't believe it. The Bubba's a noun. Ellen's a noun. That shirt's a noun. My, my shirt's a noun. My shoes, noun. See, those are nouns. Person, place, or thing. Function, basic uh, principles of English. Um, now, when you look at verbs, verbs are different than nouns. They're more charismatic. <laughs> uh, they're not into just person, place, or thing. They, they give themselves to expressing the action of the sentence. They're the cutting edge. They're really into what's happening and, and what specifically the nouns are doing. Okay? That's basic English grammar. Now, that correlates over to uh, Greek, because Greek has both verbs and nouns, but Greek it's a little bit more fun because Greek verbs are moody. If you think your spouse is moody, that's, they're like Greek verbs because Greek verbs are moody. Okay, they do. They have they have, they have moods. In other words, what a mood is, and I, I, this is my way of explaining it, is that a verb is an action. And you would say, well, what kind of mood is that action? For instance, one of the moods in uh, in Greek is the indicative. Indicative, I-V-E. Well, too many T's and E's in there. It's the, <clears throat> it's the indicative mood, which is the mood of... Starts with an F, ends with an act. I don't know. <laughs> fact. It's the mood of fact. So in a, it's a matter of fact. That's the mood of a verb. Pretty basic. Another mood, one of my wife's favorite, is the imperative. <laughs> and that's the mood of? Command. <laughs> no, that's my, that's subjunctive, and that's my favorite. What? <laughs> that's the imperative. <laughs> it's the imperative mood. It's a verb of go kind of thing. It expresses the mood of the verb. It's very helpful. Wish we had that stuff in English. Now, in nouns, they also are a little bit more specific in Greek, okay? They have cases. They have cases, okay? Two specific cases that we want to deal with tonight, and there are several, but two specific cases that are in our passage tonight that are really, really important are, number one, the nominative, did I spell it? I sound it out. And the, the genitive. 
the nominative and the genitive. Now, some have called the nominative, which is what I call it, they call it the naming case. Okay? <clears throat> it is the naming case. Because what a nominative does is it identifies in the sentence the subject or words that are associated with it, nouns. Okay? So when you're in basic, again, basic fundamental principles of Greek and grammar is when you get into a sentence, one of the first things you do is locate the subject. And so how do you locate the subject? You look for the nominative. Okay? The words associated with that subject are going to be in the nominative. Okay? Now, in our passage, okay, we're looking at Jesus. Who, what would you think would be the subject? <laughs> okay? What do you think would be the subject of verse 5? Jesus. That's what we would think. Jesus. He's being the nominative. We're going to get to that in a second. Now, the genitive, it's not the naming. What a genitive does, I really like the genitive. There's a number of ways to explain the genitive. In fact, when you get into a Greek, uh, any Greek help book, you've got how many different forms of genitive? Twelve? Uh, there's tons of different forms of genitive. So I just figured, why not have 13? I made it my own. To describe the genitive, and I think the, if you have anything, the genitive narrows, I like this, narrows or restricts the nouns. <clears throat> and you would say, give me an example. Okay, give me one right, uh, just off the top of my head. You have the noun, son. You might come up to me and say, hey, man, who do you worship, Jeremiah? And I would say, I worship the son. You would say, really? What kind of son are you talking about? And a genitive would say, hey, maybe I could help out. I could restrict or narrow down what kind of son you're talking about. And the genitive would jump in there and say the son, and you would translate, of God. And of God is the genitive that narrows down or restricts that noun, and I, he puts restrictions on it. Just like my wife is really close to a genitive. She just restricts and just narrows it, which is a help for me in my life, or I'd be all over the place. <clears throat> okay, genitive. So, and, and so the son of God, of God is a genitive and restricts, uh, restricts the son. In our passage, genitives which restrict, give content to, possession of, okay, narrow down. Most people, when we are looking at this passage, and I found this really neat, 99.9 of the scholars all, all talk about this. When they get into this passage, they all say, like we did, this would be in the nominative, the subject, and each of these would be in the genitive, giving content to, or maybe like another case like the dative, but really genitive would be fine, which would give content to or restrict the Jesus, the Christ that we're talking about. Jesus Christ, he is the witness. He is the faithful. He is the firstborn. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. There's no function. But that's not how it is. When you get in the Greek, Jesus Christ is actually in the genitive, and each of these are in the nominative, which is really strange. So when you look at the, the witness and the faithful, my NIV translates, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> my NIV translates when you look at the faithful witness, in fact, everywhere in the New Testament, in my translation, when faithful witness are used together, even in the nominative, they're always translated the faithful witness. When actually, uh, faithful is not in the genitive. So you can't, it, it's not trying to restrict the witness. 
So in other words, faithful is not describing the kind of witness. Faithful is the, is, is the nominative. It's not describing anybody. So the subject of the sentence is the witness, the faithful, the, and they're all in the singular. So it's not four. Okay? It's the faithful, the witness, the firstborn, the ruler, and Jesus describes that. And this is really neat. So this, and now if this has confused you, that's okay because I'm confused too, but <clears throat> what's going on here is emphasis is not placed on what we would know as his name. Emphasis is placed on who he is in his person. Wow, which was neat. And I found this so consistent in the book of Revelation. He absolutely will not stand. Jesus will not stand for you knowing him on a superficial name kind of way. You will have to know him in his person or you won't know him at all. That's the only way. See, he's not going to settle for name stuff. And you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a cold. Is that so? There are so many, and the way I was, even. We are Christians, and do you know Jesus? Well, yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, I know stories about him. I know what he looks like. He's white and uh, long hair <clears throat> and uh, blue eyes, you know. And I uh, saw pictures of him in the in the movie about him. Yeah, I know Jesus, and and uh, yeah, I, I know information. And but see, there's a difference between that and his person. And in the book of Revelation, of course, the entire book is of the unveiling of who he is. And knowing that, his name is only mentioned twelve times. The name Jesus is only mentioned twelve times. The whole content is about his person. In fact, let me give you an example of this. When you come into chapters 2 and 3, really significant. When you come into chapters 2 and 3, he is the one addressing each one of these churches. And at the outset of each church, Jesus introduces himself. But not in any of those churches. And I, I'm almost positive. I've read through it several times and... <clears throat> Never found it yet. Don't think it's there. But in, in all those churches in chapters 2 and 3, he does not mention his name one time. They mention his name one time. So he comes to the first church, the church of Ephesus. We know it's Jesus speaking. He says, these are the words of him. He doesn't say, these are the words of Jesus. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. And the answer for their situation is not magic words, Jesus' language. It's his person. And he does not want us to live on the level of name stuff. He wants to live in his person. Now, we've spent a whole studies on this and going back in the Gospel of John and the emphasis that Jesus puts on. He absolutely will not tolerate anyone. See, for instance, in the disciples. Turn back with me just briefly. You go back into John, and John's been covering this just fantastically. <clears throat> so when I get to these chapters, all I have to do is copy his sermons and preach them. But in, I, I found it interesting when you come into chapter 14 again. The whole emphasis is, uh, uh, you know, his uh, Jesus is, is he breaks the news, "Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going away." And I found it just almost comical in my personality that the whole reason that he's going away is because he wants to take them to a level of intimacy and knowledge of his person. 
And so they're confused, especially the first chapter, they voice this a lot. What are you talking about? You want us to know you, so you have to leave. <laughs> Which they make, it's kind of like the cheesy, um, the line that the guy says to the girl in high school, it's because I love you, I don't want to be with you. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Jesus says, I want you to know me, so I'm going to leave. And, and they're confused on that. How, can, how does that work? You want us to know you, but you've got to go. And, and there's that, all there's questions, and they don't understand. And you've got talking about the Father in the midst of that. And yet the reason behind a lot of this, especially as you come down into the middle of chapter 16, is his person. He wants them, see, if they were to remain, see, knowing Jesus physically, and we've related this, I, I used to feel like the disciples were, had an edge on knowing Jesus over, over me. Because they spent time with him. They lived with him for three years and, and they slept beside him. They watched what he ate. And <clears throat> when, he, when he spoke, they, they were close enough. When the spit was coming out, they could see it. And I mean, they were with Jesus for three years, part of his culture. They, I mean, they just knew the guy. Galilee, all the customs and all of that. Um, and yet, if they would have only known Jesus that way, without the Holy Spirit, they would have never got into this. Because his person, as John just so fantastically led us to tonight, is that his person is only made known, it's only possible through the Spirit. The Spirit reveals his person. It's a function of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus literally told the disciples, I have to come, and I want to walk you through chapter 16, just real briefly, verses 12 down through verse 16. He says, I have much more to say to you, more now than you can bear. Stephen has helped us out with that word bear. The word bear is a financial, uh, financial. It's a foundational term. Literally, they don't have the capacity. They don't have the foundation. He says, I have much more to say, say to you, more now than you can bear. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to bring you into the, to the whole fullness of what God's doing. But you don't have the capacity. You can't bear it. Um, it's the same way I feel about my son. I'm wanting to play certain games with my son. And we've been doing this. We've been playing chess together. But I'm under the impression it's more than he can bear. Because he just takes the queen and throws it. Now, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's not how the game. But he doesn't understand that because it's more than he can bear. He, he, doesn't, he, can't, he just physically, he can't do that. And so this is beyond. Think about that. What Jesus, how he wants to communicate in the relationship that he wants to have with him, the intimacy, it's not physically possible. Because why he was living, as much as, as, as much as it was, that was, it was only here. They knew what he looked like. They knew what he smelled like. They knew his name. They knew the sound of his voice. They knew some of his personality, whether he was a morning or evening person, all of those kinds of things. But they, see, they, in fact, I found it interesting, and you can, we'll move through some of that, but at, at the sec, after his um, death, he begins to appear to the disciples. <clears throat> especially back to Luke. And the disciples, he will come up alongside of them. And this was like totally hidden from them. He'll come up and talk and they don't have a clue who he is. And then he'll begin to talk and, and, and he'll begin to reveal and, and this starts to show through and they, they catch and he's gone. He slips away. And, they, and as they reflect back on that, they say, didn't our hearts burn? And, and they, in other words, they never say, oh, 
I forgot that mole. That's why I just can't believe I missed. He was left-handed, and I didn't see that. See, they don't look back and say when he was with them in that time and, and recognize physical features about him. It's like the emphasis of what Jesus was pulling them to was here. It was here, his person. That's been really big for me. It's his person. So the emphasis that we get here is that the emphasis is not on his name, it's on his person. Now what I want to do tonight is I want to look with you at the first aspect of his personhood. So Jesus is really deep. He is extending grace and peace. He is extending grace and peace to the seven churches of the province of Asia. In his person, that's the emphasis, how he's doing that, functionally how he's presented. And the first aspect of that is he is the witness. Okay, he's the witness, extending grace and peace. <clears throat> when you look at this word, <coughs> excuse me, picked up this really nasty thing in Indiana. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1. When you look at this word witness, you're going to find that um, witness is a common word used in the New Testament, very common in the book of Revelation. In fact, specifically, um, there are four basic words, primarily. There's several, maybe some more, and how they're, they're, the endings change. But primarily, there are four words for witness that are used heavily in the New Testament. Okay, they're all a little different. I'm not going to write them down, but I'm going to give them to you. The first word that we have for witness, it's used in the book of Revelation, it's used throughout the New Testament, is the word marturia. Has an IA equivalent of an IA at the end of it, Marturia. And Marturia is a type of witness as in someone's testimony. Okay? It's their testimony, what they said, not an aspect of it. It's the totality of their testimony. John the Baptist witnessing this was him. This, was, this is how you would describe his testimony, the testimony of John the Baptist. A couple of different ref, uh, references to that in Revelation. Well, the first one is Revelation chapter 1, verse 2. Um, and it's used specifically as the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, Who testifies to everything that he saw, that's John's tes testifying, that's not maturia, maturia, who testifies to everything that he saw, that is the word of God, and the testimony, that's the word, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's the totality of what has been said, the bulk, it's like the message in the New Testament here oftentimes as, as we're talking about the message. It is the sum total of everything pulled together. This is the message. Okay? It's the word maturia, one word used. It's not the word here. That's not that word witness. Witness, testimony, witness. The second word that you're going to find in verbal form in the New Testament for witness is the Greek word marturio. We have the maturia, but there's also maturio. And that is not the, the actual testimony that's given. That's the act of testifying. Okay, so you have the testimony, and then you have the actual testifying that takes place. And that's actually used in verse 2 as well of Revelation 1, where John testifies to everything that he saw. So it's the actual act of testifying. Isn't it interesting? Different words used with testimony and witness. So you have the testimony or witness, and then you have the act of witnessing or testifying. Maturio, second word. It's not that one. The third one is the, is the Greek word maturion. So maturia, maturio, maturion. And maturion, this is kind of neat, it is the, it is the bulk of um, 
It is the weight of the actual substance of the testimony. Um, for instance, in a court case, you have the testimony of all the witnesses, the totality of what it was, and then you have those who actually testify, because okay, maturia and the maturio, and maturion is like the evidence. It's the glove. Oh. Okay, it's the glove. I mean, you have all of that's part of, but that's the substance. That's the maturion. It's the, it's, it's really the weight of. You know, if you had to grab, you know, hey, Jesus is the message. Now, we have all, hey, the testimony of, uh, of the message of Christianity, the actual totality of the witness and testimony of Christianity, hey, the totality of it is huge. And, of course, the ones who testify about it. But really, the maturion, the bulk, the substance that carries the weight would be, hey, Jesus. Okay, he, that's the weight, that's the glove. Third word for witness in the New Testament. That's not it either. The fourth word, and it's our word that is used here, Jesus as the witness, is the Greek word martyr. Martyr. Martus. It's from the, uh, the masculine martus, which is where we get our word, of course, martyr. It's used five times in the, in the book of Revelation. It's used several times in the New Testament. John only uses it in Revelation. But it's martus, where we get our word martyr, used twice by Jesus and three times by someone other than Jesus. It's used in chapter 2, verse 13, by Antipas. Jesus references him. <coughs> the church of Pergamum. Jesus says, you do not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And again, faithful is not in the genitive, so it's my faithful and my witness. So the name is Antipas, but the person is faithful and witness. So right off the bat, hey, Jesus is the witness, but we know of others who also the witness. Same grammar. Really important. Uh, so Antipas is the witness, and I won't read the others, but um, uh, there's some undisclosed martyrs in Revelation chapter 17, and then you have the two witnesses in Revelation uh, chapter 11 that will bear witness uh, for so many days, and they're going to have power and authority and all that. Um, those are witnesses. Jesus is referred to as the witness in Revelation 1-5, which is our passage, and also in chapter 3, verse 14, in his introduction. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. It's a Greek word. And the Greek word martyr, this was so neat, because when I read this, I thought, oh, hey, I'll get to deal with martyr. I've read the Fox Book of Martyrs, know all kinds of stuff about the martyrs. We've heard Christian martyrs talked about here in our, in our, in our day. I had a misconception of what martyr is, because my idea of a martyr was someone who dies for their faith. I, it's me going down to Walmart, someone walking up, pointing a gun at me and saying, are you a Christian? I'm going to be a martyr. Yes, I'm a Christian. Bang, they kill me. I'm a martyr. No. <laughs> you can die for your faith and not be a martyr. Because a martyr is not someone who dies for their faith. Okay. First off, martyr, that word martyr or martyrs, occurs in the noun form. So it's not an action. It's not something that's done. You can't do something to be a martyr. Intertwined into the person of the martyr, because it's a noun, not a verb, intertwined in the person of the martyr is the proclamation of the message of the gospel that literally leads you to death. In other words, you can die for your faith and not be a martyr, but everyone who was a martyr died for their faith. And they died for their faith, and there was an evangelistic witness tied up in the midst of that. 
So being a martyr is simply not dying for your faith. It is, hey, I am, an I am a message. I am a, not an action, preaching the gospel. Oh, so you were out preaching? No, I am a message. Noun stuff. That the proclamation of the gospel, think about this, is interwoven and tied up into the person that I am. And as a direct result of that, I, I am called a martyr. I am, I am killed for the gospel, for the proclamation of the word. So phenomenal. I'm killed as a martyr for the proclamation of the word. You were preaching? No. <laughs> no. But tied up into my very person is the proclamation of the word. Now, it's really interesting in this. Um, when you look at some of the applications of this, for instance, Antipas, thought, thought this was really neat. When you do, and I looked up on Antipas because he was a martyr. He's an example of a martyr and, and uh, uh, hey, how did he die? And the proclamation wound up in him and I figured he would have been killed because he was out preaching and they came up and they stoned him to death or they cut off his head or something really horrible. And he wasn't. He was roasted alive, first of all. Yuck. <laughs> he was roasted alive on an iron plate and he was killed and, and literally, the only thing I can find about him is he was killed on a whim. He was killed on a whim. In other words, there was no, and someone even, uh, one of the guys even uh, alluded to this or, and even suggested this, that there was no definite answer. There was no definite reason why he was killed. It's just who he was. <laughs> he was just, <sighs> how do you describe that? I'll give you an example. My family are not Christians. <clears throat> and some of my wife's family is not Christians. And after I started going out with my wife, and this continued over the years, and I really, I know it has nothing to do with my personality because I'm such a likable person, but um, they, uh, they don't like me. Most of them do, but there's a few that just can't stand me. And um, this was not too long ago. This is real recent. Some of it was over Christmas. That's <laughs> um, my... You know, my wife just got upset about it and said, what, what, is, what, is, what do you don't like about him? And be specific. Well, he's judgmental. And my wife says, what? So he's actually condemned you and stood up and said you're a sinning, sinning dirty, rotten pagan going to hell. And he, they said, no. But you was over there. We were watching the movie. And he stands up and leaves like he's Mr. High and Mighty. And they took, they were taken. There were several different aspects of that. The jokes he does ever, there's a great joke, and it's filthy. And everybody laughs but Jeremiah. And it wasn't, they couldn't put their finger on. In other words, it was not something that I did. It wasn't an action. It was a direct result of my person. And the way, I was a conviction to them. I was a, I'm a martyr in my own family. And they hate me. Antipas, what did he do? Was he out proclamation? No, no, it's just, Irritating. <laughs> He's just an irritating guy to ever until he fry him on a plate. <laughs> That's who Antipas was. They were so convicted by his life. What did he do? You preach a lot? No, that wasn't it. He came up and preached at you. He used you in a sermon, didn't he? No, he didn't. What did he do? He just high and mighty. He's too good to watch the shows that I watch. He's too good to laugh at the jokes that I laugh at. Oh, he doesn't listen to that kind of music. Oh, he covers his son's ears, and we're talking about. And it wasn't an action. Do you see the difference? It is a proclamation. It is being the message versus the message, whatever else you want to call that. 
It is a proclamation. That's, that's this. Jesus was the witness. Not what he did. It's who he was in his very person. He was the witness, the proclamation of the gospel. And of course, uh, one, of the, one of the most powerful, um, <clears throat> you come into the book of Acts specifically, and Stephen just nailed this, in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, he tells the disciples, you are going to be my witnesses throughout the world. But as you begin to go through the chapter, there's not a list of, oh, they're going to go out and preach, and that, no, 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 no. They are going to be the witnesses of the resurrection. <laughs> Partakers. Experiences. Hey, they are going to literally, they're going to literally demonstrate that lifestyle. That's the idea of this word right here. You're going to be my witnesses throughout the world, which has nothing to do with activities. And so you could go out and do all that activities and not be this. Because this is not an activity thing. This is a noun. This is an intertwining of the, of the proclamation of the message that's in my person. It's not maturia. It's not maturion. It's not maturi. It's not all that. It's, 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 it's literally the per I am in my person a witness. What's also interesting is that this is so, this was so neat. This is so intertwined in the person of who you are. You can not only produce it, but you can't hinder it. Antipas. Ant now, this was so significant to me. Antipas was roasted on a plate. I'm a pretty tough guy. When I was in the Marine Corps, I, I um, Dick's got his hand cut up. Don't ever give him a knife. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but he's got his hand. You seen it? His thumb's the size of my leg, and it's just nasty. He's got a big old cut on it. He cut himself open. He told me how pain was. Painful was. He goes, never cut towards you. When I was in the Marine Corps, I was working in a shop, and we was in Somalia, in the field during the Somalia conflict back in 1992. <clears throat> and I was working, and I, we had this knife, box cutter, and pulled towards me and slipped, came down right across my thumb, nearly cut it off. Uh, cut the tendon in half, all of that. Tendon's a hollow white tube. <laughs> I was like, wow, look at that right there. Cut it all the way down to the bone. Cut everything completely down to the bone. Grabbed that thing, man, it was just hot. And uh, they stitched all of that up in the field. We didn't go to surgery. No, I wasn't under. I just... <laughs> Tough. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it hurt. I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. I'm, I'm pretty tough. Frying on a plate, that might be a little bit beyond. <laughs> I mean, literally, literally, you can go into the, the physics of this. Literally, he could not physically maintain through discipline this frying on a plate. You can't, man. Break, break down. See, I mean, uh, we know some about uh, some of the legalized way of getting information, the, the, um, the water deal and uh, waterboarding. Have you ever heard of that? And, and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. They take saran wrap and put it over your face and, and pour water in your nose and it gives you the feeling of drowning. You're going to do that to each other. Um, so that's, it is such a stress. It is such a stress on the human body that you can't, you can't, you can't maintain disciplines. Sleep deprivation. Terrible, terrible. You cannot, it's impossible physically, physiologi physiologically, to maintain disciplines. Antipas did. Because that's not a discipline. That's who he was. 
They say the crucifixion was so wretched, so difficult, you could not maintain discipline. Jesus did. It wasn't a discipline. That's who he was. Stephen, the book of Acts, chapter 8, is being stoned wretched. Horrible death. Being stoned. Beaten with rocks. In the throes of death, crying out. Not a discipline. Those are all witnesses. See, it's, 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 it's back to the nature of who I am. I'm a male, which means I'm masculine-oriented. I've tried to be feminine. To communicate to my wife. I've tried to be feminine. I'm not feminine. I've given up on being feminine. Seriously, women are feminine in their nature and in their, in the way they process, male or masculine. I've tried. I, I prepare. I, I think. I pray. I study so that in a certain situations I will speak feminine. <laughs> I'm masculine, man. And it comes out masculine. I'm like, I can't. You can torture me. You can torture me. And I'm masculine in my approach, the way that I'm created. Because masculine is not a discipline. It's who I am. Wouldn't it be phenomenal? See, I, 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 man, I've struggled with this and used this, so I know you've heard this before. I don't want to do Christian stuff. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want to feel the way he feels and hunger after this hunger and, 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 and just walk and be a, and see this language is all over Revelation and John's Gospel. I and mean, he looks at Nicodemus and says, you've got to be born again because it has to be person stuff. It cannot be activities. So the grace and peace of, that is being extended to the, to the seven churches is Jesus was that first. He was the demonstration of that witness. He was the demonstration of that witness right there to them. But not only that, if it's livable and it's possible, because he was not only the grace and peace and coming down and being an example of that, but Jesus himself was that witness. Jesus himself was that witness. He came and literally experienced what becoming that as a man was like under all the limitations of man. The fullness. In other words, he was the recipient. See, this is extended to the seven churches of the province of Asia. Hey, time is given. Jesus entered time. As a man, I mean, hey, he, was, he had a birth and he had a death. He aged. So he entered and functioned within this the way these two did not. This is really heavily within the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, there are three applications specifically. You would say, okay, Jesus was the witness and the intertwining of the message was in his very person. Well, what exactly is that? He was the witness of this, of the Holy Spirit, of the revealer, and we looked at the Holy Spirit in the passage, the revealer, the resourcer, and the, road, the roadway. Jesus was the revelation of the Father. He was in his very person, the revelation of the Father. I want to give you an example of this. I want you to turn back uh, with me to John's Gospel. <clears throat> of course, one of the uh, functions, obviously, of the Holy Spirit is he is the one that's going to take from God and bring it down to the realm of man. And one of the functions of that is he reveals God to man. We cannot know God outside of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit literally was down moving in Jesus, and Jesus was the revelation of the Father through the Holy Spirit. We know this all over the place. We need a couple examples of this. Some really neat language. I picked out just a couple just for you. In chapter 14, Jesus again is talking to them, and uh, 
He's saying, trust in me, trust in my Father. comes down to verse 5, and Thomas asks a very uh, uh, valid question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're going away, don't worry. Again, as John said, the message was, and he, the message was leaving. I mean, all their hopes, all their, he was leaving. Hey, you guys will be okay. And I'm, I'm going to go prepare for you, but I'll, you know, all this language. And, and hey, they're confused. And of course, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, now listen to this language. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because Jesus was, the, he was the recipient of the revelation of the Father through the Holy Spirit in his life. He was the witness of that, that it is possible. Everything that the Holy Spirit wants to do in revealing God to man, Jesus was the message of that in his very life. He goes on. And we're going to skip, uh, skim down verse 8. Of course, the Lord is uh, Philip confused to show us the Father. And Jesus says, of course, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and the words I say to you are not my own? Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He goes on and deals specifically about some other things. Picks up the same... Uh, uh, line of talk thread in chapter 16, 17 rather, just one verse, in the prayer, chapter 17 in the prayer, he says in verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those, <laughs> I, and that's again, hey, that's not action stuff, that is nature, that is, that is who he is, it's, it's he is that witness of the message. Okay, which is the Father. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the Word. That reveal, the word revealed there, the literal translation is demonstrated. I've demonstrated. He is the message. And in fact, when you look at that phrase, and I did this, I revealed you, it's hard to go back and look where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to show you the Father, watch this. It was just, in the natural, everyday workings of his life. It, was, uh, it wasn't just miracle stuff. It was, it was his heart. It was his passion. It was, it was the John chapter 5, poieto language of, of who he is and what's going on in my father is going on in me. And, and you've been around me, so you've been around him. But it's, it's the person. Jesus in himself was the message. He was, he, was a, he was the witness in his person, not actions, who he was. And, of course, the other two about the Holy Spirit are the, re the revealer. Uh, revealer was the one we just looked at. The resourcer. Jesus was the witness of the life that's resourced by God. He did things that no human being could do. He walked on water. He healed a person that was born blind. <clears throat> he did all the things. By the way, he looks at the disciples and says, you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to be in on it. And the last one is the roadway, the vehicle of oneness. He was the witness of that. So, what am I trying to say to you? Jesus, and by the way, yes, he's the witness. First, he's the first witness. But as you begin to go after him, every, hey, there's other witnesses. Antipas was a witness. Stephen and Acts was a witness. I'm called to be a witness. I'm not called to witness in terms of actions. I mean, yeah, there's places for that, but that's not this witness. 
It's the intertwining of the message within my very being, being, meaning that the full plan of the Father through the Holy Spirit in my life, I am the demonstration of that. I am the witness to that. And there is going to be ramifications of that. There will, that will grind in our world. It will cause problems. It will cause you be fried on plates. You'll be fried on plates. Or at least you'll be cut out of the gift exchange like me. <laughs> Jesus, I do. I'm, I'm realizing at a young age that I don't have the discipline to pull off what you've called me to pull off. I give you permission tonight. I give you absolute authority in my own life tonight so to, to so intertwine in my very being all that you dream for me in this hour of my life. As we're approaching having another child and trying to raise one, I just, I know that disciplines and teaching my son about you and all the right phrases and what time to teach those and, and what to say, to, I'm going to blow that, Jesus. I want to be the message. I want to be the message in my very person. I want to be the living witness in front of my boy, teaching by my very actions. I want to be the revelation of what you look like. I want to be the, I want to be the witness of what a life sourced by you looks like. I want to be the revelation of the oneness and intimacy of God and man, what that looks like. I want to be the witness of that message. In my very being, I want to be the proclamation of you. We thank you for the truth of your word tonight. We give you permission to bring us, Father, through and to, and at whatever end we need to, Father, in order for you to do what you need to do in our life so we become the witness. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> amen. Amen, amen, amen.